Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And us today means two people. So I have two guests. I usually have one, just so you know. I have here with me Linda and Andrew. I will present them. But first, let me talk about the topic. This topic was actually brought up by an institution. I was contacted by them. It's called Every Town for Gun Safety. They contacted me actually in February because that's, I think it's the month against or to combat gun violence or it's here in the US. So, but we couldn't, we just could not do it in, in February. Everybody was very busy. We just could not schedule it, but here we are. I do believe that this is a very important topic to cover, especially when it comes to suicide, because we know that it's the main means when it comes to suicide. It's around 50% of all deaths by suicide are by firearms. And it, it is the, and also here, at least here in the US, I don't know how it is in, in, in the rest of the world. In my country, we don't really talk about gun violence that much, but here there is a very heated debate. Right. There is always and it's it's a very divided society when it comes to guns, because every time we bring it up, let's end gun violence or combat gun violence. There is a huge outcry because the idea is that you're either for guns or against guns. And that's not what we're going to do today. This is not about being for guns or against guns. We, we are not here to ban guns, but gun violence. And that's, it's very, very relevant to our topic because 60% of all deaths by guns here in the US are suicides, even though we never talk about them. We usually talk about homicides. Every time there is this discussion mm -hmm. and match, there is, it's usually a mass shooting that happens. And then we start talking about gun violence. Nobody ever mentions suicide. And, and it's really strange when you think about it and when you look at the numbers. So this is why we're here today. That's what we're going to talk about. Both my guests have lost loved ones to suicide by firearms. And that's why they're here. So let me introduce you both. Linda Cavazos, did I say that right? Yes, you did. Okay. Yes. From Las Vegas here in the U.S. And Andrew Rose from Boys, Idaho. So, Linda, you lost your younger brother, Louis right. Pacheco. Right? Yes, that's correct. In 1980. And from the information that was sent to me, it was a borrowed gun and he was 27 years old. That's correct. That's absolutely yeah. correct. Yeah. I'm really sorry you had to go through that. As, as my listeners know, that's how I lost my dad too. It was by firearm. And, and one of the things I always think about every time this topic of, of guns come up, my dad actually collected guns. He was in the army in Brazil for many, many years. 
And he had a collection of guns. And I think that became from my family. We were very comfortable with guns around the house. He was very, very careful. And that's why I never engage in this for and against conversation mm -hmm. against guns, because I don't think it's useful. It's only right. divisive, right? Because it's not about banning guns. It's about gun violence and safety. That's what we want, right? Yes. And Andrew, here you are. Thank you so much, Andrew, for, he for being here with us. Your brother, Ben, your older brother, died by firearm suicide in 2013, right? So quite recent. Yeah. Sorry about that, too. So we have something in common, which we didn't, but we do. Linda, I want to ask, actually start with you. Okay. Because your story, I was reading about your story. You were an educator for 25 years. And after this happened, after your loss, you changed your life. So I was reading your story and I was going, wow, it sounds so much like mine. I worked as a journalist for 20 something years, same thing. Mm -hmm. After I lost my dad, I said, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to help people through trauma and, of course, suicide loss. And this right. is why I do what I do. So very similar to what happened to you. So tell me a little bit about your story and, and what happened and how it impacted you, because it really had a huge impact. Huh? Yes, it did. And thank you so much for that introduction. I was a high school teacher when this happened. Louis was my younger brother by two years. It was, as many people will say, completely unexpected, out of the blue. Mm. Um, I took a leave of absence after this happened. Louis was the sixth, uh, the youngest, the baby of six children, three boys, three girls. He was the youngest. And when I wrote my Moments That Survive uh, for the Everytown Survivors Network, I talked about how we had received, our family had received four, five, actually five different phone calls to all the siblings. We didn't find out until later on that each of us had received a call that day. And we had no idea because we all lived in different parts of the country. And it was just a shock. We didn't realize until afterwards that he was calling to say goodbye. His yeah. phone call and I, and I titled it for two phone calls that changed my life. And the first one was of course, the phone call from Louis. And he seemed a little bit sentimental that day. He had lived with me previously in Las Vegas and then he had moved back to Arizona. And as the two children that were the two closest in age, our four older siblings were 10 years older, 11 years older, 15 years older. They were more like, kind of like parents and he seemed a little sentimental that day, but, you know, I just, I had no inkling and it was something that he was kind of like the jokester of the family. He always played jokes on us. He was the youngest one. He took full advantage of being the baby of the family. I can't tell you how, <laughs> I can't tell you how, if you have any younger siblings, I can't tell you how many times I got into trouble and all he had to do was look at my mother and my father with those big that brown eyes. That. <laughs> yes, and, Lean, and then Linda was in trouble, in trouble, right? <laughs> and so that day, it was, it's so very clear to me for a while. It was a blur. I had been a teacher for about 15 years, and I had worked with mostly juniors and seniors in high school. So I'd worked with many traumatized kids. 
I never saw my younger brother as being in that category. Mm-hmm. He had had some, he had had some issues that had caused some kind of some bumps in uh, the road of life, but he had overcome them. He was a, getting started as a construction worker. He loved to go country music dancing, and I'm more I'm more Latina music, rock and roll. And so we had to. I, I forgave him for all the times that he would step on my toes when we went dancing, because I didn't know how to do this dancing. I wanted to do you know the the conga and other things like that, but no, he didn't want to do that. So it was quite a shock, and I want to say that my grief journey was more like shock and disbelief and then anger and then I had to find a way to focus and the way I found to focus was to help my five siblings and one of my older brothers was the one who actually found Louis Hmm. and he was extremely extremely so traumatized right right it's really really hard when you've seen them yeah right right so I didn't know how much if you wanted me to wait for the other questions or if you wanted me to go into more of this. No, 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 continue. I I want to talk. I I was actually talking to both of you before because I don't want on my podcast, I try to combat this view that the person who died of suicide, it's all you you remember. It kind of erases their life. So I really make sure that we talk about them as a person, I mean, okay. who was it? Who was Louis? Right. So tell me more about Louis. I have to say the one thing I like about him, I love line dancing. <laughs> <laughs> so you would I been... am Latina though. I am Latina <laughs> right. like you. Right, right. But you... I would love to. I would. Right. I would love to have danced with him. Just, yes, just saying and, that. <laughs> and he was a good dancer. He was a big guy. And I will tell you a funny story about Louis. It was from when we were children, and yeah. this kind of is on the same narrative that you were talking about to remember his life, that Mm -hmm. even when he was a child, he was very, very funny. So my name on my birth certificate was always Linda Pacheco. And the only middle name I had was A for Arviso, which was my mother's maiden name. So I was born on the day after Christmas. Louis was born two days before Christmas, two years apart. So I always asked, why do I not have a middle name? They said, oh, you and Louie, you know, you don't have middle names because, you know, it was Christmas time and it was a very hard time for Mama, you know, this and that. And I was like, okay, you know, everybody else had a middle name. And so one day I look out the back window and I see Louie walking through the backyard and he's crying, llorando. And I'm like, <laughs> what is wrong with it? Louie, que pasó? You know, what's wrong? Oh, I, I'm going to flunk first grade. I say, what? you're going to flunk first grade? He says, yes. He says, I did not pass. And oh, I was very angry. I was, and my mother was ill. And so of course, third grade, eight years old, I'm going to take charge, right? I say, let yes. me see that report card. Let me see that report card. Let me see what happened. So I look at it. I start looking at the grades. And then I look at the bottom and I see Luis Arturo Pacheco. I'm like, what? You have a middle name? I thought we did not have, we did not have middle names. We were born at Christmas time. He goes, oh, uh, you weren't supposed to know. They asked me not to tell you. And here he was, six years old, and he had been told not to tell me. So I forgot all about that he was going to not pass first grade. By the way, he did. 
He did. He did, of course. Did. Who but doesn't that, pass first grade? <laughs> who doesn't pass first grade? It was more that he was the class clown. He was always cracking jokes, making trouble, you know, things like that. But it was yeah. very funny. He says, I'm so sorry, he says, but they told me to keep a secret. So I kept a secret. And yeah. I always yeah. remember that because so boy that of principles, bit, right? Yes, you know, the principles, principles very, very and, young on. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So he was very popular um, in grade school. He loved sports. He liked baseball. Mm -hmm. He liked basketball. Um, he always told me that he would cover for me in baseball and basketball, except that I always told him I was better than him. And um, we had, of course, two older brothers, two older sisters, and some of them had already left the home because they were so much older. So Louis was the was the sibling that I grew up with. Oh, so very close, huh? Very close. Did you see any? Now you said that it was a surprise, right? That there was it was really took you by surprise. You had no inkling. But now, but that's what happens then, right? What about now when you look back? Do you I see? Look, do you see signs? In the coming years, after I started going to suicide survivor groups and therapy, and I was the only one in my family that would agree to go to therapy, mm -hmm. because as you mentioned, we had this stigma of silence, of not talking yeah. about it. Yeah. And in the Latino community, it's even more concentrated that this is familia. You, you know, you don't yeah, family, talk about yeah. this, it's family. But in looking back, that phone call, I would say that when we didn't find out until a few months afterwards, as we were all talking to one another, and my two sisters and I, we talked, we cried, we talked, we cried, we tried to take care of our father, who my father just became a different person. He just withdrew. I we had just lost, totally we had just that. lost our mother a year before to cancer. And in mm. the months after Louis's death, we lost both grandmothers. So we lost four people in 18 wow, months. And I think what I would say is there were probably some subtle warning signs. He had been a little bit depressed about losing a job. Mm. His relationship was not going well, but he was very good at putting on this facade. Yeah. He wanted to be the one. Yeah. He was always the one to make us laugh. Everything is fine. And he always made it sound like, well, I will see you soon. Mm, but yeah. I think that, you know, I think that if I had looked at anything as far as a sign, it would be that on that phone call, he brought up several things that had to do with our childhood, with our mama. Oh, so he were rem reminiscing. Yes, yes. Yes. He was very nostalgic. And usually yeah. he was not like that. So I would say that that that's almost like something like now as a therapist, I work with uh, children and adolescents that have attempted suicide or that are survivors of suicide. And sometimes you have these things of where they're giving away things. They're talking to people yes. about, oh, if anything should happen to me. And so Louis was more subtle. I think yeah. he gave us credit that he didn't want to put anything out there that was very obvious. Yeah, and you're talking, but also the Latina, and I'm Latina, so I can talk about the Latin, Latina culture, yes, right? Yes. Uh, we know how men are, right? Men yes. are not supposed to, if they have feelings, please do not show. Right. Right? It's, it's macho, be strong. Mm -hmm. It's a macho Latin man, right? So that makes it really, really hard 
for me to, had, to talk about. Yeah. I wanted to say that our two older brothers, one that was 12 years older than him, the other one that 14 years older, they were very much macho, mm. very much like my father, more like older generation. And yeah. so he had those as role models that to be strong, oh, to be strong. Yeah. And also too, he had been extremely sad and taking longer than the rest of us to accept the death of our mother. Of he course, was extremely, yeah. extremely he was close to her. Baby, huh? He was the youngest, the baby and very close. Yeah. And as I said, he took full advantage of being the baby. He was very yeah. close. And so if I were to look back when I started going to see a therapist, I realized some of that might have been some yeah, warning signs. But we, but we just don't know, right? Lina? Right, so we don't know. I want, I want to continue talking about your family, the reaction, how it changed the family, if it did. But first, I would like to hear Andrew. Absolutely. Andrew, can you talk? Let's talk about Ben now. Tell me what happened. Tell me about your brother. Yeah. So uh, let's see. We moved my family. Uh, we've moved a lot. And I'm, I'm close to the baby. I'm the second youngest. So I haven't moved nearly as much as, as my parents have and some of my older siblings have, but I have still moved more than, more than most, I think. Um, we moved to Idaho in 2010. Mm -hmm. Ben uh, attended college uh, at BYU-Idaho for a few years. For various reasons, he, he didn't finish his education there. So he, he came back to Boise, uh, lived here in the Valley with us for a while, and he spent some time living at home. He was able to get his own apartment at one point. They had to do renovations and he was forced to move back in uh, with his parents, which I know was very hard for him. Yeah. Uh, he liked being independent and it was hard for him to accept that he was relying on his parents for help. And I know it was hard for him not having finished his degree. He was looking at going back to school mm -hmm. uh, shortly before he died and kind of exploring his options. Um, and he was actually a really gifted caregiver he was very generous and very, very empathetic and really cared about elevating marginalized people and taking care of people that, yeah, I don't know. He just cared for people in a way that not everyone can. Yeah. Um, so very sensitive, huh? Yeah. 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 He was, was very sensitive in his own way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was, it was 2013. I'd been really struggling with the move. I was uh, in seventh grade when we moved. So right smack dab in the middle of middle school. Oh. Um, so even left, if you left all your friends behind, right? Well, yeah. Oh, that's hard. Yeah. Left friends behind. Even, even if you're not moving middle school is hard enough just socially. And so that was, that was a really difficult time in my life. And I felt, uh, I felt very isolated. I felt like I had no friends. Yeah. Uh, even if that wasn't necessarily accurate, I, I very often felt that way. Mm -hmm. And Ben, uh, when he was living at home, and even when he was living in his own apartment, he went out of his way to take me under his wing, I guess, so to speak. And we'd never been terribly close before. Most of our interactions up to that point had been, you know, uh, brotherly fighting, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. But he, he just kind of put that all aside and was ready to be my friend for as long as I needed someone to be that. And yeah, those memories are... I mean, they were my formative years. So yeah, mm -hmm. his influence in my life is still still really huge. Yeah. Did you at the time, I mean, you said that you were struggling. It sounds like it, he was going through a tough patch too. Did you guys talk about that? 
um, we didn't talk a lot about it. Mm -hmm. I caught small glimpses here and there, but there were a lot of things that he, I think, was not comfortable talking about. Yeah. Or that maybe he felt like he didn't have space to talk about. Mm-hmm. Or that he didn't want to burden someone as young as me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm also a very sensitive person. Maybe he didn't want to burden someone as sensitive as me. Just thinking here, it sounds like he didn't, you didn't really see any signs. It didn't, was there any history in your family of suicide before? Not that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. I will say that in the, in the weeks and days before he died, we were increasingly concerned about his mental health. And how he was just coping with with all of these different life transitions that he was right in the middle of. And yeah, obviously looking back, some things are way more obvious. I remember uh, I didn't find out. I, I knew before he died that he had been on different medications. And that shortly before he died, he had been on a new medication. And that he was really struggling with that. But I didn't find out until after he died that he most likely had bipolar disorder. Oh, okay. So looking back, we were able to, I was able to, uh, you know, and the more I understood about mental health and about that disorder, mm-hmm. was able to see how that really played out in his life and how that, how that affected his well-being. So some mm-hmm. of the signs that, you know, I, I, could, I could talk about are uh, in the weeks and days before he died, he was more withdrawn than he'd ever really been. I think an absence of action is, or an absence of behavior is, can be more difficult to notice than a presence of. In the presence of, yeah, that's a very good point because that's what we pay attention, right? What did they do? Mm -hmm. But what about the things that are not said, the silence, the withdrawal? And you you never think, I mean, who thinks about suicide unless it's someone like us? I mean, we've been through this, the loss of suicide by suicide and, and now it changes everything. And that's one of the things that I want to hear from both of you. Usually after the death of a loved one, within the family, a lot changes. You start paying more attention to your loved ones. You Sometimes even I, I interviewed someone, I think it was my last episode, published episode. She was, no, two, two episodes ago. She was telling me how she talks to her daughter all the time, mm-hmm. any sign of sadness. And she knows, yeah. And she tells me, mom, I'm not going to do it. Quit asking me. Because she said, no, I will not make the same mistake again. I didn't ask your dad. So I am going to ask you for the rest of your life. Do you have a friend or a loved one who struggles with suicidal thoughts, ideation, or even previous attempts? If you do, I have some information for you. I know that the situation is scary. And many times we want to do the best we can to help, but we don't know how. Over the course of my 15 years working in this field, I have learned how to address these issues and that's what I want to share with you. And for that, I have just created an online course that will guide you step by step on how to sit down and have this difficult conversation. The course is called How to Help Suicidal People, and I purposely took a very straightforward approach so that when you finish, you will feel prepared to take action in a safe, non-judgmental, and compassionate way. You will learn about 
the mental state of a suicidal person, how it impacts the way they view their personal crisis, how to bring hope into the conversation, how to prepare yourself to listen to them, especially when they talk about their emotional pain, how to create a safety plan, how to assess their risk level, and much, much more. The course comes in six modules and it's all videos with very simple language and reading materials for quick reference. If you think that this course is for you, click on the link on my notes or go to my website understandsuicide.com and click on the course tab. There you can also watch a free sample and have more information about the course. Thank you. So is, did it change your family dynamics, Andrew? And then I, I would like to hear you, Linda. Yeah, yeah, no, the moment that we, that we found out, you know, things were never the same. It's just uh, such an incredibly painful and impactful moment in anyone's life that there's really no going back. In some ways, we, at least, you know, in the immediate term, my family, we all drew really close together and we all tried really hard to support each other because, yeah, we were all trying to cope with a grief that was incomprehensible. And we knew that we, that we had to be there for each other. Mm. In the long term, though, you know, once the funeral was over, once the flowers were gone, once people had stopped asking about it regularly, things changed in a different way. And there was a, just kind of a silence that settled in. Um, and I don't think that was necessarily a conscious thing. And I don't think that that was something that all of us or any of us necessarily wanted. For my part, specifically, any mention of Ben, any questions about, you know, how to handle his belongings afterwards, even just sharing memories of him. I kind of developed a habit of, as far as I can tell, involuntary of dissociating. I just shut down and I, yeah, just kind of couldn't handle things couldn't handle trying to comprehend the grief that was, again, incomprehensible. And I think in some ways, all of my family members went through something similar. Mm. And I think in some ways that that tendency towards, towards silence and towards avoidance uh, is still present in my family dynamic. And that can mm. be, that can be really difficult sometimes. Yeah. It's very hard to know because it's different grief, right? You, that's the way you're grieving. But when you grieve in silence, it usually grows. And it kind of, it's like a wall and it's building a thicker wall every single day, every year, every year that there is an anniversary, you don't talk about it. When you talk about the person and there is a question and everybody silences. So silence is one of the mm -hmm. things that really make grief hard and unfortunately it's so present in suicide I'm, I'm glad to hear that you were supportive in the beginning because that's mm -hmm. a very tough moment as well and very relevant in terms of your grief process but silence is tough because as it grows you don't know if you should bring it up right and you're afraid of what you're going to say. Am I getting in the way of somebody else's grief, even though you're family? I, I would rather uh, have to deal with a lot of talk and, and to ask someone to just shut up than silence, because silence mm -hmm. is 
is heavy, isn't it? And it, it brings this heaviness into something that's already, mm-hmm. as you said, just too much overwhelming, right? Yeah. yeah, very much so. Yeah. I would like to say that another one of the really positive changes in our family dynamic was mm-hmm. not long after he died was when our parents shared with us younger siblings, you know, about his, his diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And ever since then, I know it's not easy for my parents and it's not easy for my older siblings, which is not to say it's not, you know, which is not to say it's easy for, for me and the younger siblings, but we've all made much more of an effort to be open and frank about mental health mm-hmm. and to just check in with those kinds of things and to not be afraid to, I would say we're not as afraid to have hard conversations and conversations that previous generations might have, if they'd had their way, would have had us remain silent. Well, and that's an indirect way of talking about men, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You're trying to honor, be. honor. Yeah, you're honoring his his life and mm-hmm. his memory mm-hmm. uh, by making sure that you check in with each other so that that doesn't happen again. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Linda, how about you? How did it affect your family? Uh, Paul, I, I first want to say that I just want to thank you, Andrew, for sharing that, and I can. I can completely understand, you know, where you said that sometimes it's just um, unconscious that the silence kind of settles in for a while, but I want to thank him for putting in and sharing that, you know, one of the positive things was then checking in with one another about mental health. And I'll just go ahead and say that there were some definitely different dynamics. And when we talk about the silence, what I mentioned before, my two sisters and myself, we were the talkers. I would go to therapy. I would come back, share with them. We would attempt to talk to my father and my two older brothers. And it was almost like there were two, I don't want to say two different camps, but it was just like they compartmentalized, they blocked. They didn't want to talk about it, especially the the middle brother who had found Louis that day. And he was the last one who talked to Louis that day. And he heard something in the conversation that made him travel to Louis's home, which was about, I guess, half an hour, 45 minutes away. And that's when he found him. And so we don't know what happened in that phone call. We know that there was a note that was left. We never were able to know what that was. And that silence And that's what we're combating now, this stigma of silence, especially within the Latino community and the communities of color that we have this culture that it's kind of protective where we think we are protecting ourselves. We had so many dynamics. My sisters are very, very religious. We raised Roman Catholic, the stigma of suicide, Mm. uh, not talking to the community, the young man that my brother Louis had borrowed the gun from, I was very worried about him. He was grieving. He had no idea. And I wanted to talk to him. My family did not want me to talk to him. They, They did not want anything talked about as far as what had happened. And yet our community was reaching out to us. So it was very difficult. I want to say that there became a kind of, I don't want to say an absolute estrangement, but it was, you knew who you could talk about Louis with and you knew who you couldn't. 
And as recently as a couple of months ago, I happened to bring something up about Louie in a conversation with my older brother who still lives in Arizona. And I was completely caught off guard. I was a memory, a happy memory I was bringing up about Louie. And it was shortly after his birthday in December. And my brother just broke down. Oh. Completely unexpected. So the years pass, but there's still this ripple effect. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it goes throughout the years. My daughters were very young when this happened. They're grown women now. So the dynamics of the family changed. And I will say, to my father lived many, many more years. We were blessed to have him for many more years. He lived to be 87 years old. And until his passing, he still, he said, I cannot understand. what what. But he, what, but he would talk about it? He would talk about it individually with me he would talk individually but not as a group and it was at about that time that I knew that I had to get besides the survivor therapy groups that I was going to that's what I learned about uh, mom's demand action I already had been involved in trying to get some um, things done about violence in our school since I was a high school teacher when I came back from my leave of absence, and I came back to my classroom and I was told by my administration, you don't have to tell them why you were gone. You could just say there was a death in the family. And I said, I wanna talk to them. And I was able to talk to them. And to my amazement, I had so many that then came forward and said, of course, course," and said, we are so sorry. Uh, We are so sorry, Ms. Quasos. My name was Casillas then. Uh, we're mm-hmm. so sorry, Ms. Casilla said, uh, we want to tell you that we have had thoughts of harming ourselves. We didn't know who to talk to. What can we do? And so like Andrew, there was a positive effect that came from that, that I was able then to steer them toward resources and to be able to say, you're yeah. not alone. We can talk about this. I had a very heavy Latino community at my school. I still stay in contact with many of these they're now grown up, of course, that were 15, 16 at the time. But I think the stigma of silence, it has to be dealt with. When I get a, a young client and my and the parents are saying, she's not acting normal, she's not doing her classwork, she's lost interest, etc. I'm very direct. And I ask them, are you thinking of harming yourself? Do you have a plan? And sometimes the parents are so shocked they will come right out and they will say, yes, I do. This is what I am planning to do. And the parents Mm -hmm. had no idea. They just know that their daughter or their son is not acting like their normal selves. I'm so glad you brought that up because this is one of the things that I talk about the most on my podcast. Silence brings silence, right? It grows, it grows. The less you talk about it, the more it grows in pain when it's kept inside as a therapist, you know where that leads. And it's, it's even with us clinicians, I I interviewed um, Stacey Friedenthal. I'm sure you know her book. Yes, I know she is. Yeah, she's very good. And she was telling me that in, she was training uh, another clinician and she was talking about, you know, how what is like the profile of your of your clients and do they do they think about suicide and she said no none of them none of them i never had a client who thought about suicide and she said well that's strange Mm -hmm. 
So mm -hmm. really, huh? So how do you ask them? And she said, mm -hmm. I wouldn't ask them because if I ask, they'll talk about it. And she said, oh my, so that, that's, that's how we say, I am very fortunate. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we are very fortunate that this has been changed. This has right. been changed right. in Brazil. It changed dr dramatically. Mm -hmm. My book in 2008, no, 2004, I never know. Yeah, 2004. <laughs> no, sorry, 2008. That's my second book because I have three books. So 2008, when I published, was the first book in Brazil. 2008. Really? Wow. First book to talk about That's suicide. Amazing. It's just unbelievable, isn't it? How the science is. is. And I, when you were talking about your family, uh, Linda, I was talking, I was listening to you. You talked about the letter that you, you said that you never saw the letter. Did, is that what you said? Or you never we, see, you don't we, know what was written? We do not know what was written. My brother, who was uh, also a teacher, and we had a meeting. And my father, he left it up to my father. And my father said, I do not want to know what is in that note because we don't know, we will never know. And none of us who are survivors, like the three of us here today, we will never know exactly what was going through their minds at that exact moment. You know, not Ben, not Louis, just we, your father. Yeah. We don't exactly know. So at the time that they write that note, it might have something in there that might be hurtful. It might be something yeah. that at that instant. And my brother at that moment made the decision. He asked for our permission hmm. to please not ask him again, ever again, to yeah. see that and, I and respect it. And I trusted him to do that and we never and we never did he did reveal that the note was only for that person's eyes and so we he we were asked to respect like last okay. wishes okay I and so yeah 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 it's a, this is one of the decisions that the family <clears throat> has to make so many decisions and mm -hmm. times like that but when you were talking about the letter i remembered what happened to me so my father he died on a monday and a monday. on saturday he actually posted a letter to me. Oh. So he died on a Monday. I received the letter on either Tuesday or Wednesday. And I rem can you imagine I mean, he was dead and I get this letter from him. It wasn't a suicide note. It was an actual letter that he wrote to me. And I started reading. And, and I think that was the moment when I had my breakdown. My first, when it really sank in and said, wow, this really happened. And the first thing, and this is, this is related, that's why I'm talking about this, is related to the silence that we yes. were talking before. The first thing that came to my mind was, I can never share this with my sisters because he only wrote to me. Mm. What came to me was how I, I'm going to add so much pain if I mm -hmm. share this with mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Not the letter itself, but the fact that he didn't write to right. them. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember that I sat down, I was crying and I thought about it and I couldn't make a decision. And I called my brother-in-law who was married to one of my sisters. And I explained to him what happened. I said, listen, mm -hmm. and, and he was training to be a clinician, a mental uh, professional. Mm -hmm. So I called him and said, what do you think? Do you think I should share? And he said, most definitely don't hide it. Mm 
So I, I finally made the decision and, and I showed my sister. But it's one of, the, again, the decisions you have to right. make after something like mm -hmm. that, right? Mm -hmm. And it just changes everything. And, it does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. yeah. Let me just hear, we are kind of approaching the end of the interview, but I would like to hear about your own process of grief because there are so many emotions involved with suicide death, right? When you have yes. that kind of loss, some people, as Andrew was saying, I mean, they keep it inside. Sometimes it's because there is a lot of anger. Sometimes there is guilt involved. It's very rare that we lost survivors don't have any guilt. Not guilt about how they died, but guilt about the moments before, not, mm -hmm. oh, how could I not see this was happening? Mm -hmm. And all, all these questions, all the what ifs, all the what ifs what that ifs. we have to deal, mm -hmm. yeah, to deal the, for the rest of our lives, right? So I would like to hear from you. How was it? What were the emotions? What was what was the roller coaster like for both of you? So can I will start with Andrew now? So it was a uh, like a tsunami of emotion. Mm -hmm. um, at first, it was it was disbelief because mm -hmm. it was just so surreal. I felt like I was living in a movie or in a story of some kind. Shortly thereafter, you know, it turned to, you know, inexpressible grief. Um, there was a little bit of anger. And I think I, I tried really hard to, to put that away. And I did that for a long time. That didn't do what I thought it would do. It didn't turn out to be so helpful. But initially I, I did... I did try to put the anger away and I tried to tried to empathize with him because even as a as a sophomore in high school I had I had had suicidal thoughts of my own. Mm -hmm. I felt like I could sort of understand why he had done what he did and I could see you know some of my siblings being very angry and that really scared me and I didn't want them to be angry with our brother and so I tried to I don't know maybe lead by example but again you can't mm. you can't not feel what you're feeling no there was definitely guilt that i hung on to for a long time and i know that i know that everyone in my family experienced that in some way uh, or another and ultimately i'm just filled with so much joy and gratitude that i had a chance to know him at all and that you know the brief time that we <laughs> share on this earth was just so beautiful that i just got to see some really some really beautiful sides of my brother. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrew, for especially for sharing with us about your own suicidal thoughts. And I was thinking when you said uh, I had my own suicidal thoughts, so I knew what he was going through. So my what I was wondering was, did it make you afraid? Because I, I mean, that's one thing is to have suicidal thoughts. But if you lose someone, that changes everything. Did it make you afraid that you were going to do? How that? How does that affect you? It was uh, it was complicated after that. I think initially I felt very guilty that I had ever had those thoughts, mm. and I because I I saw what it could do to a family, and I I felt selfish, I guess, for ever having mm -hmm. those kinds of thoughts. They didn't stop right away. I had a lot of mental health issues, and I was I was closeted. Mm -hmm. um, I was having a series of faith crises over, over the course of high school. So I had a lot of things going on as well. A lot of really difficult life transitions, uh, another, another move or two. So those, those thoughts didn't, didn't stop. And to be honest, I, 
I don't know. I, I still struggle with them at times, yeah. but I have been in therapy long enough now. Um, and I've had really good therapists and I have the support of a really, really dedicated partner and friends. And I live with my brother. He's very supportive. And of course, all of my, all the rest of my family is very supportive. So I always know where I can take those thoughts now and mm. always put them in a really healthy perspective or in a more healthy perspective, I guess. Yeah, I'm so glad you you talked about this because for for us survivors, it's so important to hear from people like you who have those thoughts because it does help us understand what goes on, right? right? Mm-hmm. I think it's very healing because we usually, when we talk about grief, we only think about the loss, the loss. Right. But let's understand who was on the other side, right? Who, mm-hmm. who made that decision that, unfortunately ended their lives but it's important to us and i'm so glad you're taking care of yourself andrew because i just met you but i can see how what a good soul you are so i'm sure you have a lot to bring to this world so stick with us take care of yourself a lot of self-care and what you just said have good people people who care about you around you all the time that's the most important thing nothing beats relationships Right. That's what we need to right. to stay focused on the good things and on mm-hmm. life and just keep going because mm-hmm. it's tough. It's tough for all of us, right? Yes. Okay, Linda, not you. <laughs> How was your grief? <laughs> and again, Andrew, I just want to thank you for your courage, your bravery, and sharing your story with us. I am just so inspired by how you have chosen to go forward. So I want to thank you again for that. For my own personal journey, it was shock and disbelief. I don't even remember the plane ride from Las Vegas to Phoenix. I just remember my siblings standing there waiting for me. Just disbelief. Uh, as Andrew said, almost like this, this isn't happening. Uh, I'm going to wake up from this. After that, it was, there was some anger. There was, I remember specifically sitting I think it was my father's living room. And I remember listening to my siblings talking about a gravesite or the choice of a casket. And I just, I, it was like, you can't comprehend. I said, I want no part of that. I don't, I just, I, my mind would not go there because I was still in the shock and the disbelief. After that, and then working through the anger, it was more where, I did the same thing that I did in my professional life. I threw myself into my work. I, I needed to take care of everyone else. So I focused, I focused on my father and my sisters because my sisters were the only ones that would really talk about it. My two brothers just completely withdrew into a shell of their own. So that was when I started getting involved several years later where I found out about Moms Demand Action. I found out about the Survivor Network. And I want to touch on something kind of piggybacking in what, what Andrew said. I'll go back to the dancing. It's going back to the memories of the laughing where uh, sometimes we would arrive at my mother's house at the same time when we were already living on our own. And there would be one chorizo burrito left, okay? And chorizo was one of his favorites. And he would say, well, I'll give you the bigger one. I'll give you the bigger one. But he never mentioned that after he gave me the bigger one, he was gonna eat most of it. And so those are the funny memories that I like to think about. And in our school district, as a trustee of the school district, 
we had quite a few suicides during COVID. It wasn't anything that happened just during COVID, but there was just more, like you said, more attention put on it. Mm -hmm. The silence was being broken. And so when everybody started talking about the data and the statistics, I would go on social media and I'd say, but what was this child like? Why are we talking only about his or her? Let's say their names. Right, right? right. let's say their names. And they were in the band, they were in student council, they played basketball, they loved their family, uh, they were a mentor to younger kids. Let's not just talk about their deaths. Let's mm-hmm. talk about their lives and let's honor them yeah. with the remembrance of their lives. So like Andrew, I feel very fortunate to have those memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much to both of you. I would like to end by asking one more question. And that is, Andrew, what would you say to someone who is going through a loss right now? That's a big one. It's, it's definitely a difficult question because um, there, there really is so little that can be said. And of course, every person is different and experiences grief differently. So you have to be mindful of that. I remember one of the most powerful and helpful things that I heard in the immediate aftermath, because, you know, our, our faith community surrounded us and mm-hmm. wanted to support us and did their best, but there was a lot of bumbling and there was a lot of it was mm-hmm. actually became a burden on us. Mm-hmm. I would say a burden on me anyway, but I remember one person who, who had experienced the loss of a sibling and I can't remember if it was by suicide or not, but they told me, something to the effect of like, it's okay to remember them and just remember the good things. And uh, she said that one of the hardest things about losing her sibling was that people didn't ask about that sibling so much anymore. So she let me know that, that if I ever wanted to talk about Ben, that, you know, there was someone I could talk about him with and I could just remember him with. So oh, yeah, so if, I, if I were to speak to someone who has experienced a recent loss or even experienced a loss a long time ago that they're still processing, which right. I'm still processing and I don't know right. if I won't be processing, but I would say, don't be afraid to feel what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Be afraid, but you can be afraid, but feel it anyway. Right. <laughs> right. Have the courage to feel what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Have the courage to remember the person that you lost and to, to grieve them properly. Mm -hmm. don't be afraid to try to make change if you think that's what needs to happen that's a great great one how about you linda um the first thing i would say is you're not alone you're not alone in this and don't be afraid to ask for help because i know my i myself i was quite willing to help everybody around me but when people asked me to talk to them about my feelings I kind of did the same thing. I kind of like withdrew. I wanted to help them. And so I would say that when support is offered to you, it's on, a, it's on your own timeline. And like Andrew had said, sometimes people were trying to help, but they would say things that they thought were helpful that were really not helpful, right, Andrew? But I didn't want to hurt their feelings. And so I would just say, you're not alone. You can reach out for help. And it's okay to talk about this person. You know, it's okay to talk about what happened. And I think on the Moms Who Man Action and working with other survivors, 
that was such a help to me. It's still a help to me right now, knowing that, and I know Andrew that, you know, we have this, this network of people that we could just reach out and pick up the phone. I'm more likely to text or to, you know, or direct tweet them or whatever, and know that no matter what time of the day or the night is, they understand what I've been through and they could talk to me. And that's what I would say to someone is just remember them. And I think that this being involved like Andrew and I are even doing something like this, which is always hard, right, Andrew? Yeah. <laughs> it's always hard. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it changes with time, right? But it's right. Never, it does, never easy, it, right? It never, it never goes away, but it goes to a different place. Yeah. It goes to a different place. And we always carry them in our yeah. hearts every day. Yeah. And for me would be, don't let suicide define who yes. they are. Don't yes. let, suicide Absolutely. is not their identity. It's, it's not their life. Happened. It's something that happened to them, but they're way more than that. Yes. So it's good yes. to give that. Absolutely. Away. And, you know, I, I want to say that even with the words that people use, I know that I have asked people to please not say they committed suicide because it sounds like you committed a crime. crime yeah. You could say they took their life, they took their life with a gun, um, they died by suicide, but it has such a stigma to it that it committed a crime and it adds, it adds to that silence, which, yeah. we must, which we must open up. Okay, thank you so much, Andrew and Linda for being here with us and sharing your story. And I want to end by thanking again the organization that contacted me, Every Town for Gun Safety. And I'm going to read what they have on their website. And of course, I'll have the website on my notes so that you can, if you're interested in contacting them and becoming a member, feel free to do that. So they are a movement of moms, dads, students, survivors, educators. And the next one is very important, gun owners. That's right. what stood right. out to me because again, mm -hmm. it's not against guns. So it's not, so they do have gun owners who are members yes. and concerned citizens working together to fight, to fight for public safety measures that can protect people from gun violence. Right. So thank you so much to You're you for contacting, for contacting me and bringing such precious people to my podcast. Thank you so much. Have a Thank good day. you so much. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com. <laughs>